0: Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Air Warrior podcast. I am your host, Richard Thomas, and this week, as the crisis in Afghanistan hits new heights, with the temporary return of US and UK forces to help in the evacuation of diplomats and civilians. We look back in an interview with a former US Navy FA 18 Squadron commander on his frontline experiences and the role that air power played in the years of combat operations in the country. All of that coming up a little later on in the show. The news this week. Around three months into its first operational deployment, the UK Royal Navy's Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carrier, HMS Queen Elizabeth, flagship of Carrier Strike Group 21 has seen the fleet's 32 aircraft fly a combined total of 2,700 hours. Speaking exclusively to Key Aero from the Philippine Sea recently, HMS Queen Elizabeth's carrier air wing commander Captain James Blackmore said that flight operations were taking place six days out of every seven to allow people to have a rest due to the demands of delivering 24-7 operations. Of the flight hours 1,500 had been performed by F-35Bs Including 1,100 vertical landings and 1,200 hours of rotary wing flight. The carrier air wing is made up of a strike element comprising 10 U.S. Marine Corps F-35Bs and 8 British F-35Bs, 3 Merlin Crozenes for airborne surveillance and control taskings, 4 Merlin HM2s fulfilling anti-submarine warfare operations, 4 Wildcat HMA2s utilized in the anti-surface warfare role, and 3 Merlin HC4s which are used for the maritime inter-theater lift missions. As the fallout persists over the fatal airborne attack on the M.T. Mercer Street off the coast of Oman in late July, tension has turned to examining the motivations and potential perpetrators behind the incident, with Iranian political and military figures implicated. A US Central Command report published on August the 6th provided the first indication of the origin of the attack, concluding that Iranian-made explosive unmanned aerial vehicles had been used in the incident, targeting the commercial vessel into unsuccessful attacks on the evening of July the 29th with one drone impacting the scene near the vessel. Investigators from the US aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan found small remnants of at least one of the UAVs on board the vessel that the crew had retrieved from the water, corroborating reports, according to US Central Command. The third attack, conducted on July the 30th, resulted in damage to the MT Mercer Street and the deaths of one Romanian and one British national on board. And finally, Bell Textron revealed in early August design concepts for military aircraft equipped with the company's high-speed vertical takeoff and landing technology. This conceptual technology will blend the vertical takeoff capability of helicopters and the speed, range and survivability features of fighter aircraft. According to Bell, the design concept will include such features as a low downwash hover capability, a jet-like cruise speed of over 400 knots, runway independence and hover endurance. It will also have the scalability to conduct a range of mission sets, including unmanned personnel recovery and tactical mobility. And that was the news. Time now to turn our attention again to Assistant Editor Joseph Campion, who is in conversation with retired US Navy Commander Scott Cartvet on his experiences leading fa 18s in combat operations over Afghanistan, who of course was speaking prior to the recent revelation of the US and UK's emergency airlift operations. with
2: the ongoing withdrawal of Allied military presence in Afghanistan. Today we are joined by Commander Scott Intake Kartvet, US Navy retired, who deployed five times on the F-18 Legacy Hornet during three deployments to Iraq in 1996 on Operation Southern Watch and 2003 and 2005 for Operation Iraqi Freedom. This as well as deploying to Afghanistan twice during Operation Enduring Freedom in 2009 and 2010. Throughout his career, he accumulated over a total of 4,300 fly hours, 650 carrier-arrested landings, and this on 11 different aircraft carriers. Scott, welcome to the Air Warrior podcast. It's great to have you here on the show. It seems you had an action-packed career in the US Navy. We mainly want to highlight to our listeners the eras when you deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan, post the September 11th attacks and before. But firstly, how did you gain the callsign intake?
0: Yeah. Joe, thanks for having me on the Air Warrior podcast. Uh, What a treat to speak with you today. So I get to ask that question a lot. Where does intake come from? And if I turn to the profile, I have a pretty big nose and I take in more than my fair share of air. So uh, that's (laughs) where intake came from. Uh, Oh, really? (laughs) I I take in a lot of air, just like the uh, intake of an F-18. Ah,
2: okay. (laughs) That's an interesting one. No, call signs have quite um, a variety of, reasoning for for gathering them but that's quite a simple one and quite uh, i never noticed it i must say though we've flown together haven't we in taking that i never yep. noticed it at the time i promise that's not a lie
0: yeah absolutely <laughs> i wish it was something cool like maverick or goose or Iceman, but the navy is a little more ruthless in their call sign uh yep. naming yep
2: <laughs> i guess yeah definitely that kind of proves it anyway so on to the questions during september the 11th 2001 You were number six on the U.S. Naval Blue Angels, I believe. You told me that you were getting ready to roll out for a practice. Tell us from there what happened.
0: Yeah, so September 11th of 2001, certainly an impactful day globally. I happened to be flying the opposing solo position for the Blue Angels, and we were getting ready for a normal Tuesday practice at NES Pensacola. And the first airplane had hit the first tower. And we had already briefed, we were kind of in that gray area between going out to the airplanes and flying. And at first impression, we assumed that it was simply a wayward, small civilian aircraft that had flown into the building. And because the thought of it being some sort of attack on the country was not, we couldn't even comprehend it, right? It didn't make any sense. And so we were walking out to the jets And we had started up. And during that time, the second aircraft had struck the second building. And literally, we were taking the runway when the FAA had shut down all flight operations in the United States. And that's when we went back, we parked. We, like the rest of the world, had turned on the news and we realized that we were at war. And very rapidly, being combat pilots who happened to be flying air shows for the Blue Angels, we quickly went into operational mode and we began to determine how quickly we could turn blue jets into gray jets, make them operational again, and be ready to fight with the rest of our brothers and sisters in the armed forces. And what's interesting about that is back in 1950, the Blue Angels were disbanded and became VF-191 Satan's Kittens, and they deployed on the USS Princeton to the Korean War. And we were fully expecting to execute that same operational evolution and return to Satan's Kittens and deploy as required or as directed by higher authority, because that's really what we are. Is we're fighter pilots and strike fighter pilots who happen to Absolutely. do loops to music. Uh, yeah. so we, we went right back to our roots, which was combat piloting.
2: How close was that to happening, intake? How close were you to change the blue jets to gray jets and what stopped it from happening?
0: Well, we came up with an operational plan and we submitted a plan on how quick we could do it, working with our maintenance and our depot level folks. And, you know, we talk about being able to do it within 72 hours and We put the plan together, submitted it, and then, as you're well aware, none of the operations went down, whether it was Iraqi freedom or enduring freedom, until 2003. So we shut down the squadron and didn't fly for about three weeks. And then our first show back was at Alliance Field in Dallas, Texas, and that was the second weekend of October. And that's a very memorable day because during that air show, the traffic was stopped on Highway 35 in Dallas. There were so many American flags flying. The patriotism that the spectators brought to that show was exceptionally memorable. Yeah, I can imagine.
2: I'm quite surprised at how quickly the uh, kind of public relations and Exploiting the US Navy uh, was the main rationale to increase morale within the United States after the attacks from the Blue Angels. Is that why you went kind of very quickly back into performing shows? Obviously, because I'm guessing everyone's main focus was on deploying after the attack. So, was this um, rationale for the Blues to, like I say, boost morale?
0: Well, I think it was to do exactly what the mission of the Blue Angels is, which is really recruiting. Okay. Ideally, we want people to look up and watch the show and feel great pride and patriotism in the country. But we also want young men and women to look up and think, boy, I would really like to be a part of that organization, which is the armed forces writ large. So the Blue Angels simply represent the pride and excellence of the United States Navy and the United States Marine Corps. And uh, we're truly a recruiting function for the Navy and Marine Corps and the armed forces writ large. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And you served your whole time, which is expected for the Blue Angels, which is three years. And then quite suddenly you were called to
0: combat. Could you uh, tell us about that? All pilots selected to the team fly for the team for two years in the demonstration. I happened to be junior when I was selected. So I got the three-year job. I flew as the number seven pilot in 2000, the number six pilot in 2001. Then I was the operations officer and the number five pilot, the lead solo in 2002. So I finished my three-year tour in November of 2002. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, operations against the enemy combatants really kicked off in the spring of 2003. I just happened to leave the Blue Angels in November of 2002, was current in the F-18. Uh, I went out and got some carrier landings in San Diego, loaded up a bag and flew out to Cyprus, jumped on a C-2. And in uh, March of 2003, I was on the USS Roosevelt as a department head, VFA-15, and we were flying combat missions into northern Iraq so it was less than five months from flying for the Blue Angels to employing against the enemy in our in northern Iraq. Wow that's quite a quick change of uh, atmospheres uh, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was <laughs> a very rapid switch and you know a lot of the weaponry had changed. To laser guided munitions and uh, the joint direct attack munition, which is a GPS weapon. And so my training in that weapons and weapons delivery took place airborne as we were headed into Iraq. So I was comfortable in the airplane, but I needed to get proficiency in weapons delivery quite rapidly. And oh, by the way, we were the night carrier. So there were two carriers in the Eastern Mediterranean and one of them was designated the day carrier the other was the night carrier and the roosevelt just happened to be the night aircraft carrier so we were doing all of our missions at night with night vision goggles into northern iraq to crit and Missoul and those cities
2: how did they achieve your training so quickly how did uh, was it like right this is what you do show us you can do it and off you go or how do you train whilst in combat
0: it was on the job training is probably the best way to put it.
2: <laughs> wow. That is crazy. Ooh. So, you're at Intel, this is your mission. And during that route to the mission, so from the carrier during transition to theater in Iraq, you were training basically. Uh,
0: we were reviewing the systems uh, on the different yeah. weapons that we were employing. That's correct. And so, you know, my first combat. Deployment was in 1996 for Operation Southern Watch. So I had some combat experience, although that was a very quick combat deployment. And now it was just far more intense because we had several carriers in the Persian Gulf that were coming in from the south. We just happened to be the two aircraft carriers and strike groups that were in the Mediterranean that were coming in from the north. But yeah, it was on-the-job training, and I got up to speed quite rapidly.
2: So how did flying differ from the time during Southern Watch to time
0: in Iraqi freedom in 2003? Was it purely just the weapons? Yeah, the weapons changed. Some of the early warning systems had been upgraded. Clearly, the defense of Iraq had become more aggressive, so... As I'm sure you'll recall seeing in the video, the anti-aircraft artillery, the AAA and the surface-to-air missiles had improved, and Iraq was definitely putting up a fight. So in Southern Watch, we had air superiority, and we were really just patrolling the skies to make sure that Iraq was adhering to the rules that we had delivered during Desert Storm. So it was exceptionally benign, and now in 2003 during Shock and Awe, it was a full-fledged battle for several weeks where we were engaging against them and they were engaging against us until we had gained air superiority. So it was a very different, more aggressive fight.
2: Yeah. Well, we know you were flying the uh, the F A eighteen Legacy Hornet. So what configurations were flown and what weapons were you carrying or could you tell us what weapons you dropped?
0: Well, we were carrying laser-guided munitions and the GPS-guided munitions in addition to at least one or two air-to-air weapons in the event they were able to get airborne. And then, of course, we had the many rounds of 20 mic mic, which is the 20 millimeter machine gun round that we carry in the Vulcan cannon. So we had uh, essentially our machine gun, several air to ground weapons, laser guided and GPS guided, and then air to air weapons. I mean, it was a pretty full complement of weaponry so that we could engage against air to air or air to ground weapons.
2: So you deployed in 2003, and you also deployed again in 2005 for Operation Iraqi Freedom. Were they very similar? Which ship were
0: you aboard for 2005, and were you at the same unit? Same unit. So 2003, we were there for Shock and Awe, and then we returned to our home port in uh, Virginia Beach on the East Coast, and in 2005, we redeployed to Iraq, except this time we were in the Persian Gulf. Executing operations into Fallujah, some Baghdad operations. At that time, there were also combatants coming in through Syria. So we were patrolling their entrance points and ingress points into Iraq from Syria. So it was very much the same fight that was going on. There was no air to air threat or really surface to air threat. At uh, the medium to high altitude, in the low altitude regime, they could still shoot at you and they would, but we generally stayed above any of that potential threat. And then we were really supporting ground forces in and through Fallujah, Baghdad, and out to the west of Iraq, operatives were coming in through Syria.
2: Yeah. So the first operation you were, the night carrier, were you the night carrier again in 2005 or was this the ops?
0: It was a little bit of both. Yeah, at that okay. point, there weren't quite as many aircraft carriers because it wasn't the initial surge of the war. Uh, yeah. And we were the only carrier in the region at the time. So we were putting up as much air coverage for our really joint forces that were on the ground in Iraq. Was the frequency of missions different? You know, once you're on board an aircraft carrier, the tempo of operations kind of remains the same. So. The Combined Air Operations Center generally releases their air tasking order, and I would argue we probably had 20 to 30 support missions a day, so probably about the same as in 2003.
2: And how many did you fly them yourself, of the them operations daily?
0: Oh, so you would only fly one mission, you know, one mission a day. It, it, yeah. yeah, if you had a Iraq support mission, it was no more than one a day. You know, you have five strike fighter squadrons on the aircraft carrier that are supporting all operations. So not only are you supporting the ground forces in this case in Iraq, but you also have to defend the ship. So you have airplanes that are up defending the ship. There's a small boat threat from Iran you know so there's other missions that are taking place to protect the battle group you're patrolling the Persian Gulf additional reconnaissance for the maritime picture so there's lots of missions taking place but 20 to 30 of those would be in direct support of ground forces in Iraq
2: yeah so as well as these two deployments three deployments i believe you also deployed twice to Afghanistan in both 2009 and 2010, but this time as a commander of a unit. So, how was this different to your previous deployments? Now you were a commander?
0: Well, just more responsibility, of course. Uh, so, yeah. I took over command of VFA 83 in 2009, actually, while we were at sea supporting Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. So, I had not been to Afghanistan yet, but, you know, US and allied. Joint operations in theater are remarkably similar, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan. Sometimes the rules of engagement are a little bit different, and the operations to get into and out of theater are different. So now we were on the USS Eisenhower station in the North Arabian Sea. We were flying over Pakistan and then into Afghanistan and we were supporting marine forces in the Helmand province we were supporting air forces near Kandahar and then occasionally we would go as far north as Kabul but that was a little bit more unusual but primarily in the Kandahar south and southwest into the Helmand province supporting marine forces and special navy special forces in the area.
2: Yeah, it's quite clear to us that you flew many combat missions during your time in the navy. So, do you have any memorable missions while deployed that you could share with us?
0: Yeah, so you know, that's a really great question. And so, I would say the most memorable was an event in the Helmand province and what happens during these long sustained operations, which is the phase that we were in you would get assigned a certain area in the country and you would await operational tasking. And what normally happens is there would be a troops in contact, which they refer to as a tick. And so you would get notified that there was a troops in contact event. You would be given a vector and an altitude and then eventually a frequency to talk to the Joint Tactical Air Controller on the ground, the JTAC. And then through what they call a nine-line brief, you would be given a nine-line brief from the ground forces, which tells you where the friendlies are, where the enemy is, what weapon they want, what heading they want. And it gives you a very fast and succinct way to communicate with the ground forces so that you can provide them the support as quickly as possible, because you can't employ unless you have 100% positive identification of the enemy which makes sense. So we had been notified of a troops in contact. We were given an initial vector. We were given a frequency. And as soon as we checked in with the Joint Tactical Air Controller, he immediately asked us what weapons we had and immediately started assigning targets to those weapons. And so myself and my wingman The overall scenario was that there was a special forces unit that was pinned down by two, a north and a south high terrain. And so we were asked to employ weapons on both the north target and the south target to protect the special forces that were in the valley. And so we employed Our bombs on those targets, but there were still enemy combatants on one hill. And so the only thing we had left was a 20 millimeter cannon. And normally when you shoot a machine gun, you want to pull the trigger and kind of bunt the aircraft to amass as much weaponry as you can in a small confined area. And that the enemy was strung out along a ridgeline. And if you were going to engage an enemy that was on a ridgeline, you would want to fly parallel with that ridgeline so that you could essentially drag your nose along the ridgeline and employ it in a straight line, if you will. And that's the way that I wanted to come in, but the JTAC on the ground wanted me to come in perpendicular to the ridgeline which was a little bit unusual. And when I said, look, that's not the best way to employ this particular weapon. And he said, look, I've got Dutch helicopters coming in and they're gonna employ rockets along the ridgeline, parallel to the ridgeline. So they had the parallel run in, I had the perpendicular run in. And so it was kind of at dusk. We were getting low on gas. They really needed our help. And you could hear the machine gun fire in the background you could see the machine gun fire because it was at dusk. So you could see the, I'll call it the sparkles of the enemy machine guns firing on our forces. So the Dutch helicopters came in, they launched a volley of rockets. And we immediately came in once the Dutch helicopters had pitched out and cleared the area of fire. And I was coming in perpendicular to the hill and you could see the machine gun fire along the ridge line to my right and my left. And so as I started to fire, I realized that the only way to get the 20 millimeter to the left and the right was to gently kind of touch the rudders. And so with the machine gun firing in a slight left rudder back to a slight right rudder, I was able to lay down our fire against the enemy in what I felt was the most effective way, the JTAC, the Joint Tactical Air Controller really liked that and its effectiveness. So he asked me to re-engage. And so I just popped up, came back around in a 360 as fast as I could and did the same thing. And like I said, you could see where the enemy was because you could see the muzzle flash, which is a more appropriate term than the sparkle, you could see the muzzle flash from the enemy fire. And I just tried to put as much 20 millimeter cannon on the muzzle flash as I could. And that, along with Dutch forces, along with our forces on the ground, we were able to suppress the enemy and neutralize them and save that particular special forces unit, which was super cool words at the bar, right? (laughs) It was, yeah, absolutely spectacular. Did your
2: wingman do it also? But did he perform or she perform that kind of left rudder, right rudder approach when laying down the, the 20 millimeter gun? Or was it just
0: yourself? No, he didn't. He, uh, he had engaged, and he employed both a laser-guided munition and a joint direct attack munition, uh, which is the GPS weapon. And to tell you the truth, I, I don't think he got in on the 20 millimeter firing he was a fairly new guy and it was really congested airspace at low altitude so i held him high in an observational position to engage if he needed to right so yeah so that's a bit of a long story and i hope you don't mind but yeah that uh, no 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 it all. was a super exciting and successful engagement
2: yeah i'm sure uh, no one will complain about that story that's well to say the least unique and can be as long as it needs to be because that deserves some ears right there. That's rather exceptional yeah. flying intake.
0: <laughs> Joe, I will tell you, uh, I have the forward-looking infrared footage from my aircraft of that particular attack, and it was pretty awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! I, I mean, I would like to be in the debrief during that. I bet you got some praise.
0: I got lots of questions because it was an unconventional, yeah, use of the weapons, but it was highly effective.
2: Yeah, I wonder if anyone's done it since, whether that be in combat or
0: training. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. It worked that day, and for that, I am grateful.
2: Yep, very true. That's all what it's about. Throughout all these deployments, we need an opinion of yours to clarify air power and its vital role during Operation Enduring Freedom. How vital was it?
0: The air power and the air superiority. It's it's critical. I mean, and so. The air power and air superiority gives you a dominance in the fight that is absolutely necessary for victory. Yeah, when you control the skies, you control the battle and ultimately the war. Yeah,
2: yeah, very true. So do you still think with the ongoing withdrawal of both U.S. and allied military presence in Afghanistan, do you think there's still a need for the air power over the skies of Afghanistan?
0: Well, that would eliminate the withdrawal, right? I mean, if we still have forces in the air over Afghanistan, then we're not necessarily withdrawn. We're only partially withdrawn. And to tell you the truth, I haven't followed along that closely in the news, but intake's opinion is you know, there are some Afghanistan people that could truly benefit from the freedoms that we provided, which are more than the freedoms that they are given by the Taliban and other rulers. And if we withdraw completely, they are at risk of being at a significant disadvantage, which is a shame because they helped us when we needed them. And I just hope that we don't pull the rug out from under them.
2: Yeah. Well, that was certainly an interesting uh, interview, Intake. It was an absolute pleasure and nice and brief, but some well, including that engagement with the gun is some seriously unique stories and I appreciate your time massively and I'm sure our listeners will also. So thank you again for
0: being here, Intake. I appreciate you asking me, my friend. I look forward to hearing the
1: podcast. Send me a link when you launch it. For our listeners, if you'd like to know more about the topics discussed today and all the rest of the news from the air domain, please visit the Key Aero and Air International website. But for now, until next week, thanks for tuning in.
0: This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.